Let's pray together. Father, we are glad and thankful for this time to worship you together. And I pray now that even our time in your word now would be an act of worship. That as you show yourself to us through the words that are here, that we would respond with gratitude and with praise for who you are. And that you would change us and make us more uh, into the image of Christ. And that you'll do that by the power of your spirit. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Please turn in your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 49, Isaiah 49, and if you're using a Bible from this room, Isaiah 49 begins on page 517, so that should help you to, to navigate it, if you have the Nathan Grieve version. Now, um, I, I'm not a historian by any stretch of the imagination. But I have always been very interested in uh, reading about and learning about the first Thanksgiving. And maybe it's because Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday uh, for a number of reasons. But um, I, I've done, of, of almost all non-biblical historical events, I've probably read more about the first Thanksgiving than anything else. And so last week I, I came across an article and um, was, was reading it and, and I was fascinated because it pointed out something that I hadn't thought of before and that was the relationship between the first Thanksgiving and the Reformation. Alright, so think about this with me. It really is. Think about this with me. Um, so... We just last year, most of you know, celebrated the 500th anniversary of what most people recognize as the beginning of the Protestant Reformation. 1517, in Germany, Martin Luther um, gets the ball rolling, and the momentum continues to build in Germany, and it spreads from Germany, and then also, you know, in France and Switzerland through what, uh, where Calvin lived and, and was influential. And it began to spread, obviously, throughout uh, the rest of Europe. To the point that uh, these churches, as churches are becoming more and more reformed in their beliefs and, and Protestant, meaning they're protesting against the Catholic Church because the Catholic Church had been really like a state church, meaning uh, it, was, it was just part of the law of most of these countries that you belong to a Catholic church and the governments were Catholic and, and they ran the church and so forth. So as, as some of these churches are reforming and some of these leaders are becoming influential, um, there were some who sought to, uh, in their own words, purify the church, uh, especially in England. So as England caught wind of the Reformation, uh, these, these people who sought to, in their own words again, purify the church of England, uh, hence they became known as the Puritans. Very good. Um, they, they were obviously met with a lot of opposition. They found a lot of difficulty. And so uh, some of them just sort of gave up and said, well, we need to go somewhere else where we can actually be influential. And so some of them looked at maybe moving to like the Netherlands, which was um, had some religious liberty, but uh, it was also not really great morally. And so they thought, well, it's going to be hard to be pure there. And so a lot of them, that's how a lot of them decided, well, we'll go to this new world. We'll go to the Americas. And there we can begin to establish a community built on Reformed teachings. Uh, built on the the things that the reformers emphasized and taught, 
and, uh, and, and just start a new life there. And so in 1620, many of these people who became known as pilgrims uh, arrived, and, uh, and, and most of them arrived not where they intended to land. They wanted to, to land you know, in the south, but they landed instead in what is now New England, and they weren't prepared for winter there, and so most of you know the history that a lot of them became very sick and lost their lives, and they just experienced a lot of famine and, um, and sickness and, and, uh, and so forth. Well, the rest of that year, once that first winter was gone, uh, they learned how to do things like grow food for themselves and hunt and build shelters. And where did they learn most of those traits? From the Native Americans, that's exactly right. And so when it came time uh, in late autumn of 1621, so now they had been there about a year, they, the, these European immigrants, came, uh, wanted to hold a feast. And so they invited the Native Americans to come and to celebrate the bountiful harvest that they had. And they, they commemorated it as a, as a special thanksgiving to God because if you read uh, especially the writings of like William Bradford, who was the governor, uh, of this of this group there, the guy believed completely in the sovereignty of God and and everything every provision that they had they recognized it that God had had given and they'd seen God's hand in all of it and so they really there for a time were able to establish this community and it was built again on their belief that the truths of the Reformation were worth building their lives on and establishing a, a community around. And so, so there's a connection there between those two events that I thought was really uh, pretty fascinating. Now, you might be wondering, uh, why would I delve into that little bit of a history lesson as we get ready to talk about, uh, about Isaiah? And, and, of course, we're at a time of year where we just celebrated Thanksgiving, and so we're reminded more and more of the need to be thankful, but not just to be thankful like generally... Uh, you know, as though, as though we have uh, random reasons to thank God. We have in our Bibles actual specific reasons to be thankful to God, don't we? Like there are truths in the Bible um, that, weren't, that weren't just invented by people in, th- in the 1500s. Like they've been in Scripture since it was written. And so Isaiah even uh, is going to show us tonight, I think, some of these truths that the Reformers would have acknowledged and, and Isaiah, it, throughout this passage, is urging the people to be thankful. He's urging the people to celebrate uh, and, and be glad and be joyous and even sing to God for His goodness. And so, so Isaiah makes that emphasis, and we want to, to make that emphasis as well as we start tonight in Isaiah 49. Uh, so go ahead and, and turn there if you haven't already. And, and you, in your bulletins that you have, we're going to list five reasons for thankfulness, all right? Five reasons for thankfulness because Isaiah is urging these people to be thankful and to celebrate uh, specific truths about God. Again, not just generically, uh, but specific truths about God. And so here are those five things that I think he wants to draw our attention to tonight. So here's number one. The grace of God has appeared to all people. The grace of God has appeared to all people. That's the first reason for thankfulness. Now, grace, when we talk about God's grace, uh, grace is a word that means favor. It means that God has looked favorably upon humanity. And it means um, that whether you are a believer or not, 
God has done good things for you. So there are certain things in the world that everybody gets to enjoy, and you don't have to be a Christian to enjoy them. So, so do, you, do you have to be a follower of Jesus to enjoy, like, nice weather or good health or, or great food? No, that's just a good gift that God gives to all people on the earth, right? So God's grace is evident uh, even in just a lot of the common, pleasant things that we get to enjoy most of the time. And yet, there are also specific ways that God is especially gracious to his people. So let's, let's look at some of those, and let's list those in the notes. So the sub-point there in your notes, the first one to write down is that he, God, has shown favor in the covenant of salvation. He has shown favor in the covenant of salvation. And, and that's another way to word that is that God is gracious to promise to save us. All right, so look at, look at verse 8. We'll start there, Isaiah 49 and verse 8. Isaiah writes, Thus says the Lord, in a time of, what's the word? Favor, I have answered you, and in a day of salvation, I have helped you. So he is equating here favor with salvation. In this time of favor, in this time of grace, I have answered you, and it has been in a day of salvation. And so the primary way that Isaiah says God has been favorable to us is by saving us. And, and if you continue to read that paragraph, uh, Isaiah explains it. He, he kind of gives the picture of a prisoner, somebody who's been set free. And when they're set free, they have the freedom now to enjoy things like uh, plenty of food and water. And he describes down in, um, in verse 13, look at verse 13. He says, because of this, sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth, Break forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he will have compassion on his afflicted. And so Isaiah says, essentially, give thanks. Sing because of this. Uh, just, just like we have, have sung joyously already tonight as an expression of our thankfulness to God. So that's one aspect of his grace. Another aspect, and you could write this in as well, is that he has not forgotten his children. God has not forgotten his children. So, let's pick it up in verse 14. Zion said, The Lord has forsaken me. The Lord has forgotten me. But verse 15, the response is, Can a woman forget her nursing child, that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands, and your walls are continually before me. So, God's people, the city of Jerusalem, uh, described here as Zion, they felt like God had forgotten them. Okay, do you sometimes feel like God has forgotten you and just sort of left you on your own? I think we all feel that way sometimes. And, and this God had previously made a covenant with them. He'd had a relationship with them. And so again, you might feel like, well, I have a relationship with God. Why does it feel like he's forgotten me? Well, in reality, just as we've read through Isaiah, uh, we've noticed that for a time, God had kind of given them over to their enemies, hadn't he? Uh, specifically to Assyria, to the nation of Assyria. But he did it because of their rebellion, right? It wasn't like God just got tired of his people. They had been rebellious against him. And so he had, he had uh, turned them over to their enemies. But had he forgotten them? 
No, he hadn't. In fact, he, he goes so far as to say that you are engraved on the palms of my hands. So he hadn't forgotten them. In fact, it was through them that the next evidence is seen, so write this down, that he has promised to make himself known. He had promised to reveal himself. And, and, and again, that's evidence of God's grace, that he would reveal himself to people. So look at verse uh, 22. Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will lift up my hand to the nations and raise my signal to the peoples, and they shall bring your sons in their arms, and your daughters shall be carried on their shoulders. Okay, so the picture is that God is calling to those nations where Israel had been scattered, and he's telling those nations, bring my people back. Like, carry them in your arms and on your shoulders and bring them back to me. In verse 23, kings shall be your foster fathers and their queens your nursing mothers, and with their faces to the ground they shall bow down to you and lick the dust of your feet, and then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait on me shall not be put to shame. So, so this is like what Aaron read when he read Micah 7. Uh, he read that phrase where uh, the enemies of God will lick the dust like a serpent. Because even back in Genesis 3, remember one of the punishments on, on the serpent there, the, uh, on Satan, was that you'll crawl on your belly and lick dust. And so, so God is now saying that all of my enemies are going to lick dust from the feet of my, of my people. And when that happens, uh, look down at the end of verse 26, the last half of verse 26. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. So as God was victorious over their enemies, they would know that He really is God. And then the next, the last evidence that's given here of God's grace is that He has given an obedient servant. He has given an obedient servant. Now, so far in Isaiah, uh, we've seen that Isaiah himself has been called a servant. We've seen that the nation of Israel as a whole has been called God's servant. Uh, look, and so look at what God says to that nation. Look at chapter 50 and verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Where is your mother's, this is, this is God talking to Isaiah about Israel, Where is your mother's certificate of divorce with which I sent her away? Or, or which of my creditors is it to whom I have sold you? Behold, for your iniquities you were sold, and for your transgressions your mother was sent away. So, so God's talking about Israel here as though they were an unfaithful wife. So, so God had established his covenant uh, with them, with her, had had this relationship with her. But she had been sent away. Why? Because of her, because of her sin. Yeah, because of her iniquities and transgressions, it says here. But down in verse 5, Isaiah begins to speak about another servant. So look at verse 5. The Lord God has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, and I turned not backward. I gave my back to those who strike, and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. And then, and then look down in verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Now, what kind of servant would be worthy of being obeyed? 
Well, one who he himself had been obedient, right? You would only obey an obedient servant. Well, Israel hadn't been obedient, had they? And really neither had, had Isaiah himself been completely obedient. So who is this servant? And we'll get a clearer picture here in just a couple of, of chapters. And so Isaiah is trying to get the readers here to recognize all of these evidences of God's grace in their lives. And then secondly, second main point here, Isaiah wants them to be, be thankful because the faithfulness of God, this is number two, the faithfulness of God motivates the faith of His people. All right, the faithfulness of God motivates the faith of His people. We want to have faith in God. We trust God that He'll give us faith. And our faith, most often our faith increases uh, when we see that God Himself has been faithful. All right, so when we look at God's actions and we see that He's been faithful in the past and so we can trust Him to be faithful in the future. And so Isaiah continually points people to the past. So here's what he tells them to do. First of all, he tells them, look to the calling of Abraham. Look to the calling of Abraham. Uh, we'll try to go through these quickly. Look at verse, uh, verse 2. So this is uh, chapter 51 and verse 2. He tells them, Look to Abraham your father and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. Okay, so Abraham started as one man. But then from him came a great nation, Right? And, and even in his lifetime, Abraham questioned how all this could be. You know, how can I have a son in my old age? Well, then God provided one for him, right? Uh, and then God even had said, go to this mountain and sacrifice this son. And Abraham, even in his obedience, uh, had to wonder, all right, Lord, how are you going to fulfill your promise in all this? And then God provided a substitute. Uh, and so, so Isaiah here is pointing out, look, God was faithful to Abraham, and so he'll also be faithful to you. He also tells them, this is the second sub-point there, pay attention to the coming of a new Eden. All right, pay attention to the coming of a new Eden. Look at verse 3. For the Lord comforts Zion. He comforts all her waste places and makes her wilderness like Eden and her desert like the garden of the Lord. So joy and gladness will be found in her, thanksgiving and the voice of song. God had made a, a, a paradise once before, hadn't he? In Eden. And he put the man and the woman there. And the reason that they had to give that up was, again, because of their own rebellion, right? But God here is saying that he will create paradise again. He'll make a new Eden. Uh, a, guy, a guy I met at, sem at seminary um, who subbed in some of our classes, he said, uh, only God could write a story in which the beginning is perfect and the end is better. Because God is, has, has already created paradise once, but when he does it again in the future, in a, in a marvelous way, it's going to be even better than it was uh, the first time. And so God is promising. The, the wilderness will be made like Eden, and then Thanksgiving will be in that place. Um, the third piece of advice he gives here is to listen to God's instruction. Listen to God's instruction. Look at verse um, 7. He says, Listen to me, you who know righteousness, the people in whose heart is my law. 
Fear not the reproach of man, nor be dismayed at their revelings. So how would, how would people know righteousness? How would they know not to fear man? How would they know not to be dismayed? Well, the answer is they would have God's law in their hearts. They would know his teachings. So that means they would have to read it. They would have to know it. They'd have to think about it and meditate on it and live by it. And so it's worth us asking ourselves, how are we doing with that? Um, if God has revealed himself in a book, how well are we paying attention to it? Because when we look at the book, we see God's faithfulness. He also tells them, next thing, to remember his victory over Egypt. To remember his victory over Egypt. Uh, look, at, um, look at verse 10, how this is described. Isaiah 51, 10. Uh, Isaiah asks, Was it not you who dried up the sea, the waters of the great deep, who made the depths of the sea a way for the redeemed to pass over? And so for the next several paragraphs, he just is praising the Lord that he had even delivered Israel from Egypt because that was the primary way in the Old Testament that God had displayed his salvation for his people. And so for Isaiah's day, Isaiah is basically telling them, look, just like God rescued you guys from Egypt in the past, he'll also rescue you from Assyria in your day. And so the last thing there that Isaiah says is that they should be free from the bonds of Assyria. Be free from the bonds of Assyria. The same, the same guy from seminary, uh, he, he had another saying. He would say that over and over again in the Bible, uh, you see God stacking the odds against himself just to show off. And so that's what God did really in Egypt, and it's what he does again with Assyria. Uh, making Assyria as powerful as they were so that God could, could overthrow them and show his power. And again, all throughout Isaiah, we've seen Assyria threatening God's people over and over again. Um, and yet, if you look down at verse, uh, go all the way to chapter 52 and verse 11. Chapter 52 and verse 11. He, uh, he tells his people, Isaiah tells the people uh, regarding Assyria, he says, Depart. Depart, go out from there, touch no unclean thing, go out from the midst of her, purify yourselves, you who bear the vessels of the Lord, for you shall not go out in haste, you shall not go in flight, the Lord will go before you, and the God of Israel will be your rear guard. And that's, that's almost exactly the same thing that God said to Israel when they, were, when they were leaving Exodus. The Lord will go before you, and he'll come behind you, and he will deliver you from your enemies. And so just like, just like Israel, we have to be aware of, of how God has been faithful to us. And the greatest way that God has been faithful, the greatest evidence of his faithfulness is through his servant. So the third reason for thankfulness is because the servant of God bears the sins of his people. The servant of God bears the sins of his people. Now we said earlier, we'd come back and we'd talk about this obedient servant. So here we are. So, notice these ways that the servant was an obedient sin-bearer for God's people. Uh, there's three, three things that we'll emphasize about this. The first one, write this down. The servant was humbled. The servant was humbled. Now, when you read chapter 52 and verse 13, the first thing you read is, is the Lord saying, "...behold, my servant shall act wisely." He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. 
Well, if, if this servant's going to be exalted, it would seem strange then that, that the very next verse, verse 14, says that as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. That doesn't sound like somebody who's exalted, does it? Sounds like somebody who's humbled, uh, somebody who became pretty low. Uh, look, skip down to chapter 53 and, and the last half of verse 2. Uh, we're told that he, this servant, had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. And this goes along with what we read earlier about how this obedient servant would, servant would give himself over to people who would even pluck out his beard. So the question is, if this servant was obedient, then why was he humiliated in this way? And here's the next reason. The next sentence, write this down. The servant is a substitute. The servant is a substitute. So, pick it up in verse 4, Isaiah 53, verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And he was oppressed and he was afflicted. Yet he opened not his mouth. And like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. So here's what Isaiah is saying. He's saying that this obedient one, who should have, because of his obedience, should have had no griefs, no sorrows, no sins, no oppressions, no afflictions, that he has traded his obedience to people for their transgressions, for their iniquities, for their sins. So he's taken all of his innocence and put, them on, put it on the guilty ones and taken all the guilt and put it on himself. He's the one who had peace, yet he gave peace to those who deserve judgment, and he took the judgment on himself. And what Ryan read earlier in 1 Peter uh, makes very clear who this passage is talking about. Because Jesus fulfilled the role of this obedient servant, didn't he? And he did it so that all of us disobedient servants could be counted as obedient, as though we had done nothing wrong. Because if he bears our sins, we don't have to. So, so look at verse 9. Uh, it says that they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. So, so he, this servant was actually killed. He was actually buried as though he were just another wicked man. And yet, the next point there in your notes, the servant will be exalted. He will be exalted. Uh, verse 10 says that it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When, he makes, uh, when his soul makes an offering for guilt... He shall see his offspring, he shall prolong his days, and the will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. So, 
after, his, after this servant's death and burial, he would have offspring, he would have long life, he would have prosperity, he would have satisfaction. How can that happen to someone after they die? What would there have to be? Life again. Yeah, resurrection. And, and this was God's will. Isn't that what verse 10 makes very clear? Isn't that what we read in verse 4 also? So, so on the cross, Jesus died bearing all the sins of the world. And God's wrath was poured out on the one who was innocent so that all the guilty ones can go free. And so the question is, have you received this salvation? Or are you still holding on to your sins? Now, any, any adult, any leader in here would love to talk to you more about this if you have questions. So, so please seek us out afterwards. Because holding on to your sins means that you will have to carry them, uh, carry the weight of them forever in hell, separated from God and from His people. So, so we urge you to turn from those sins and to trust Christ today. And Christ is exalted. He has been exalted. He has been raised from the dead. And He has been raised from the dead for the glory of God. So, number four, fourth reason for thankfulness is because the glory of God highlights His love for His people. The glory of God highlights His love for His people. Now, uh, we've already talked about how God previously had been angry with His people, right? Because of their sins. Remember, He had sent them away like an unfaithful wife. But look at what He says here in chapter 54 about those He sent away. So, we'll start in verse 4, all right? Isaiah 54, 4. He tells them, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood you will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. And so, and so Israel, the Lord's wife, uh, returns to him because his anger has now turned to compassion. And in your notes, you can write down that this has happened as it did with Noah. As it did with Noah. So look at, look at verse 9. Um... He says, this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. So, you remember, right? In Noah's day, God dealt with sin furiously by flooding the whole world. But in latter days, He would deal with sin furiously on the cross. And so once again, God's anger towards sin would turn into compassion uh, for those who, whose sins had been dealt with. So anger to compassion and, next point there, lowliness turned to plenty. And this is as it was with David. This is as it was with King David. So skip all the way down to chapter 55 and verse 3. He tells them, um, Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live, and I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. 
And behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. And behold, you shall call a nation that you do not know, and a nation that did not know you shall run to you because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. So David went from being a nobody to becoming a king. And when David was king, uh, he had command of the nation. And other nations were drawn to Israel because of David's kingship. And so now, in the same way, God's telling people all over the world, Come to me. Uh, I, I, I will give you plenty to eat and drink, he says there at the beginning of chapter 55. And at the end of, look, at, look again at the end of verse 5, uh, why this has happened. He says, uh, this is Isaiah 55, 5, the very end, Because of the Lord your God and of the Holy One of Israel, for he has glorified you. He does it because he's glorified you. So that, that is to say that, that God glorifies himself in his people. The glory of God is seen through people who show other nations what he is like. And we can best do that through his word. So here's the last point. Number five. Almost done. Number five. The word of God accomplishes his purposes for all people. The word of God accomplishes his purposes for all people. Look at verse, uh, skip down to verse 8. The Lord says, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. So very clearly here, Isaiah is saying that God's thoughts are great. Right? God's thoughts are great. Uh, they, they are higher and greater than ours. You and I don't normally think very high thoughts. Uh, we, th- we, think, we think about pretty lowly things. Uh, and, and I know this about us because, um, for one, I know what I think about and talk about. And I overhear a lot of your conversations as well. And uh, it just if we're really honest with each other, we talk about things that are really quite irrelevant most of the time, uh, if, if not just pathetic because our thoughts are very lowly, but that is not true of God's thoughts. We know that God has very high thoughts. Now, how do we know what somebody thinks? How can you tell what somebody is thinking? Either by what they say or what they do, right? So, how do we know what God is thinking? By what he tells us and what he shows us, and where do we find all of that? In his word, right? So, look at verses eight and uh, look at verses uh, 10 and 11. See the connection here. Verse 10, For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose, and it shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. So God is saying there, and you can write this down, last thing, that his word is successful. His thoughts are great and His Word is successful. God expresses His high thoughts through His Word. So you may wonder why we've spent more than an hour now singing and reading and talking about God's Word. And the answer is because it is guaranteed to succeed. Okay, There's never a time where it's fruitless to give our attention to Scripture. 
And so we thank God for the truths that we see there. Now, these truths in Isaiah, all right, these five things that we've said we need to thank God for, these are the same truths emphasized by the Reformers. They're the same things that were celebrated by the pilgrims at that first Thanksgiving. And so we also want to be especially thankful to God for them as well. So let's pray that that'll be the case. Father, I ask now that as we uh, break into some smaller groups to talk about these things and uh, to discuss them further and to try to apply them, that you'll show us uh, how we can indeed practice thanksgiving uh, and gratitude toward you because of these uh, great and, and specific things that we see from your word. Uh, and I, I pray that you'll uh, let us not take them for granted. I pray that they will increase our faith, and I pray that we will uh, glorify you and love you uh, even more because of, of what we see here tonight. And so we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.